For those of you I haven't met, my name is Rafe Chennery. I'm the pastor here at Park South Loop. I'm eager to jump into God's Word with us today. Uh, but before we do, I have a few words I want to share, just kind of prepping us for today's message. Today's passage is one of those passages that's going to be particularly difficult for us. Um, and might I say difficult for me as a preacher, as someone that loves you and wants to see the gospel spread to all people. Uh, today is one of those days that has been a burden uh, in a good sense, but a heavy burden for me preparing for this message. The reason it's difficult is not because of the main point of the passage. Actually, I think if we actually study this passage well, which I aim to be able to do today, what we'll find is that the point of the passage is really convicting and powerful for everybody in this room. But the reason it's difficult is because in making his main point, the author Paul brings up the topic of sexuality and then even more finely hones in on the topic of homosexuality. So, a few things. Number one, to those of you, hopefully, if you have children here, you've already gotten to know our incredible children's ministry. I want to highly encourage you. I don't think I see any kids here right now, but if you haven't checked out our children's ministry, today is going to be a great day to do that. This is a good day for that. They are wonderful. They would love to help disciple your kids and take care of them while you're in here. Uh, Secondly, I am before you today as humbly as I can be, knowing that my job is to teach God's word with both conviction and compassion, to shepherd the church through difficult conversations, which I think we do every week. There is not a conversation we have that is not difficult. There is not a conversation we have that does not talk on culturally sensitive conversations. What I have seen in this conversation, uh, particularly around sexuality and homosexuality, maybe particularly on homosexuality, is that there's kind of two things I see happen. Sometimes I look out and I see churches that the way they approach this conversation is one of incredible oppression and judgment towards the LGBTQ community. Uh, You see them with signs, with, uh, it seems like their main message is one of hatred, and deep down, like in like my bones, I cringe that the outside world would lump this church in with churches that behave that way. I don't want to be associated with that. And I hate that they see, the outside world sees oftentimes me as a Bible-preaching teacher as that person. At the same time, uh, another mistake is often made where many churches will approach this topic and this conversation and throw out all of God's words and say God's word doesn't speak into this and we can do whatever we want when it comes to sexuality. And if I'm honest with you, I don't want the outside world to associate us with that either. My aim is not to try to find a middle ground between those two things. What I want to do today is preach the Bible. I want to look at what does the Bible say? What has God's word revealed to us? What I know about the character of God is that he's so overwhelmingly full of love and compassion. I I just, I know this man named Jesus that I've gotten to meet. I, I get to walk with this guy and talk with this guy and I see him and I see the way he's met me in all of my really broken messiness in life. And I say, whatever he's got to say on this topic has got to be good. It's got to be so full of compassion and love, and I want to understand it. Now, two things. One, I'm not going to be able to talk on everything there is about this topic. This topic doesn't come up often in Scripture. 
Uh, and, and today in a sermon, my job is to preach the text and teach the text, and so I can't do a full discourse on the topic of sexuality and homosexuality. I will be teaching a course called Biblical Sexuality in about three weeks. In, at that course, it'll be part lecture, part Q&A, where a handful of pastors will be available, and you will have a chance to bring all of your questions, and we can wrestle through on a more systematic way many of the topics that maybe you'd hope I'd be able to bring up today, which frankly, I just won't be able to. And so I encourage you to come to that, register on the app, sign up in the lobby, come be a part of that if you want to. Secondly, when you head out today, I've picked up a copy of a book by a man named Sam Elberry. Very short read, very powerful read. Um, uh, And he has really navigated some of the conversation on homosexuality very well. Uh, And I just want to encourage you, if you have good questions, if you have follow-ups, I'm trying to figure out where do I start even thinking about this, I want you to take that. It's a gift from us to you to equip you so you can kind of go home and be learners on your own. With that, let me pray and then we're going to jump in. God, this is yours. We are fully yours. We trust that you've got a word to say today, and so we submit ourselves humbly before your word. Would you do something powerful in this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going verse by verse through this incredible book of Romans. We began it three weeks ago. This is the third week that we're in it. And so far what we've done is we've gone through Paul's introduction. He's introduced himself. He said, I'm Paul. I'm writing this letter. And I'm writing it to the group of churches that are meeting in Rome. And they had never had apostolic leadership. And so it's this long book that goes through a lot of theology, trying to lay groundwork for them. As we begin this new section... We've called this section in the book of Romans the vast separation. I think you'll see that up here. We've broken the book of Romans into five big sections, and the vast separation will take us most of the way through chapter three. And the topic, that title, gets at this idea that there is a a vast separation between us and God. Sin has removed us from God, it separated us from God. There's this chasm that seems overwhelmingly impossible to bridge. We've been separated from God as a result of our sin. As we jump in, that's the beginning. That's the framework for where he begins to form his argument. Frankly, the argument he begins to make today will continue all the way through chapter 3 in many different ways. He's going to be looking at the consequences of our sin and how it separated us from God. Let's jump in, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. This is going to be page 939 if you have the house Bibles when you came in. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, I have preached an entire message less than a year ago on just those verses. I encourage you to go back through our podcast if you want a full discourse on just those. But let's look at what he's saying here. He begins by saying, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Now, let's talk about the wrath of God. When we talk about the wrath of God, oftentimes it's a topic that many people have confusion as to how wrath is a quality associated with the God that we know of in the Bible. And we kind of put God on trial a little bit in our modern day. We say, how could God be a God of wrath? 
Why does God have any opinion whatsoever on topics such as sexuality or how I live my life? And, and we put God on trial. We begin to question or doubt his character. And wrath is wrapped up into a lot of the questions we have about the nature and the character of God. When we talk about God's wrath, it's a very important characteristic that we know about our God. God's wrath reveals something to us about the nature of our God. We shouldn't just cut it off. We should understand it. God's wrath reveals that God has a legitimate hatred of sin. God does not tolerate sin. Rather, he punishes sin. Now, let's work that a little bit. I have three daughters, and in our house, uh, I'm the head of the household, and I've set a number of rules in our house in collaboration with my beautiful wife. We have some rules, and one of those rules is that my three daughters, who are twins or three years old, and one's five-year-old, one of them is that they don't go out the front door without me or mom. You don't open the door and walk outside. It's a very good rule. That's a rule for their safety. It's a rule for my safety. It's a rule for everyone's safety. I don't want a three-year-old running around outside in Chicago by themselves. One day, I dropped my little ones off, Mira and Joy, at the door. Joy went in, and then Mira saw me leave, my three-year-old, and get in the car and drive off. Mira without me knowing in the car, started, she, she was in the house, she walked out the door and started chasing me down the sidewalk. My five-year-old runs down to my wife, who's downstairs, and runs down to my wife and says, Mom, Mira ran outside. My wife runs upside, upstairs to see what's going on and finds Mira nearly a block away from our house, screaming on the corner. Now, Mira needed to have a consequence for her disobedience. And that was a good consequence She needed to learn that it was not okay or safe or good for her or for anybody else for her to disobey her father's commands. Why was it not okay? Think of all the things that could have happened. She could have been taken. She could have been hit by a car. And if that happened, it's not just her that has a bad day, but that ruins someone else's life as well. Her disobedience of my commands for my household put her, put our family, put another person's family, and everybody else in danger. Now, were her motivations aiming to disobey dad? No, she loved dad. Her motivation was, I want my dad. It seemed good in her little mind. And so motivations don't determine what is wrong. The dad's word determines what is wrong. Was it her passion, the the amount of passion she had for the topic? No, the little girl was screaming louder than I can scream, and I'm a preacher, right? (laughs) That girl's got some oomph behind her scream if you hear her scream. So it's not the amount of passion we bring to a topic that determines whether or not it's right or wrong. It's dad's word. And the reason for that is I have greater vision than my three-year-old. I look out, and with greater vision, I see how things are connected in ways that she can't see. I know of evil that she doesn't yet know about. I can see what would happen if certain things were about to happen, and out of great compassion for my daughter and love for all the neighbors, I've set a good rule. Our motivations don't determine what's right and wrong. And our passions don't determine what's right or wrong. God's word determines what's right and wrong. In the same way, God is good to punish sin. It reveals that he is a just God. It reveals that objective moral evil does not go unpunished. 
Wrath is God's anger towards objective moral evil. And our obedience to his word, even when our emotions and our affections feel differently and our passions strive differently, our obedience to God's word demonstrates that we believe in our heart of hearts that God's word is good and that he has greater vision than we have, even when we don't fully understand it. The great theologian J.I. Packer wrote about God's wrath, these great words. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that humans' anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Paul says that God's wrath is reserved for us because we suppress the truth. That's Romans chapter 1. What does that mean? According to Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to every person on the planet through the things that have been made. That every person must look out at creation, at nature, and say deep down in their heart of hearts, there is a God. There's no other way that this can take place. That you and I can be here, that I can be looking at you right now, that love is possible. There's no way we can be here without a God. Therefore, nobody is, is without excuse to pursue God. There's not one person. This means that the vast array of stars in the night sky shout, there is a God. This means that when we look under the water at the beauty of the colors of the fish in the ocean, it screams as the fingerprints of God that there is a God. It means that when I experience love between a father and his children, It screams, that love is not random accidental atoms floating through a chaotic universe. There's a God who created love. It screams, there is a God. No person is without excuse. For Paul, anyone who denies God's existence is simply a person suppressing what is plainly clear to them through the things that have been made. That's reality. Now, if you were to ask any atheist or possibly agnostic or an atheist today, if you were to say, are you suppressing the truth? They'd say, no, I'm pursuing truth. But with greater vision, God reveals to us what's taking place in reality. This is the lens of reality. If you deny God's existence, you're denying what is plainly clear to each person, and no one is without excuse. God has made himself clear. But notice this, the root sin that is noted here is idolatry. Let's, let's read what happens next. Verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. The root issue Paul identifies of why we suppress God's good and perfect truth and his good and perfect moral command is idolatry. Now, we have taught on the topic of idolatry from this pulpit many times, but let's make sure we get this and apply it into our lives before we go any further. The theme of idolatry comes up all through Scripture. And when we think of idols, I go back to my time that I spent in Thailand, where Katie lives in Thailand right now. Idols are really easy to see. There's gold statues on pretty much every corner. And during busy seasons or hard seasons in life or final exam seasons, you will see students and people lined up in front of these gold statues asking for help from these statues. That's one form of idolatry. 
In our day and age, in our context here in Chicago, idolatry can take many forms. Anything that you give your heart to fully, anything that you place as a higher priority over the God of the Bible, anything that drives your passions and your emotions and anything that you sacrifice for greater than you sacrifice for a God, anything that becomes your thing that you pursue and that you believe will give you security, you believe will give you safety, you believe will give you the good life that you were made for, whether that's your career, whether that's money, whether that's a marriage, whether that's just your identity, who you are and the strengths you have. When you pursue those things thinking they can satisfy you. That's idolatry. Because only God can satisfy you. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. There's only one thing that can ever satisfy your soul, and it's God, the Trinitarian God, the God that's revealed in Scripture. Every one of us has idols in our life. God's wrath is reserved for idolaters like us. So we understand first that the root cause of sin in our life is idolatry. False worship. And then we learn something really unique and frankly what I would just say fascinating about how God's wrath is applied to us. God's wrath is not just something that is applied to the unrepentant sinner after their death in hell. Now, we have talked about hell many times and hell is a place where God's wrath is poured out on the unrepentant. We understand that. But that's not what this passage talks about. What this passage says is that while it's true that God's wrath is applied to us after our death, if we are unrepentant and turn to God through Jesus Christ, God's wrath is also applied to us in this life, in this life through the seeming natural consequences of our sin, even when we don't realize it's God's wrath in our life. To show you this in Scripture, we need to see a pattern that begins to emerge in the text through the second half of this passage. There's a pattern, a grammatical, rhythmic pattern that takes place. And what I'm going to do real briefly is scan through the rest of chapter 1 and show you this pattern. And I want you to look at your Bibles and spot it with me. It's part of the point he's making. Three times, Paul shows us how mankind has exchanged something, the use of the word exchange. They exchange the glory of the immortal God with images of created things. This happens in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. It happens in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then verse 26. It says, for this reason, uh, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then, after each of those exchanges that humans made, we're told that God did something. We're told that God gave them up. We see this in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26. For God gave them up. And then again in verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. In each of these examples, we see that humans were the first movers. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for idolatry. And then God gives them up into the natural consequences of their sin. When we take our eyes off of God and we begin to worship idols that can never truly satisfy us, what does God do? God gives us over into our sin and allows the fullness of sin to run its course 
as an act of judgment. God essentially steps back and says this, okay, you think that's going to satisfy you? You think that sin is, is, is really going to give you meaning and life to the full the way that only I can? Go ahead. That's what he says. He says, go. The illustration is that of a boat on a river. This is a famous illustration that's used in this passage. A boat on a wild, raging river. That if you just hold on to the rock, that's Jesus. If you hold on to him, you're good. The boat's not going anywhere. But when we take our eyes off Jesus, God looks at us and says, you want to know what it's like to go down this river? And then he gives us a push. Go. And he allows the natural consequences of our sinful desires to become the wrath against our sin. Verses 24 to 27. Let's read together. Therefore, God, right after the exchange, we made the exchange, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, Paul uses two examples to make his point about how God's wrath is applied to us. The first one he uses, he uses the term impurity, impurity. That term literally, very literally, means sexual impurity. And we actually see that. He qualifies it. He says, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When Paul uses the language sexual impurity, he is referring to all sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, as is clearly God's design in Scripture. So, let's just get real practical here. Here in that passage, he's talking about sex between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. He's talking about adultery. He's talking about pornography. He's talking about prostitution. He's talking about living together outside of marriage. And notice specifically what the point is that he's making. The point is not just that those activities are sin. That's implied in the passage, but that's not the point he's making. The point he's making While that's true, is that when we engage in those activities that are inherently sinful, it is revealing deep-seated idolatry within our hearts that we believe those things can satisfy us more than obedience to God's word can satisfy us, and that's the nature of idolatry. We pursue something other than God and his word to give us meaning, fullness, and purpose in our life. And God says, you want no pain? You want to know that feeling of emptiness? Go down that road. Go. I'll I'll push you down. Experience my wrath through the natural consequences of your sin. A lifestyle like this will only cause pain and emotional heartache, and those scars are, in fact, God's wrath being applied into your life. Anyone who has walked a season of adult life outside of faith in Jesus knows that is true. It's part of my story. I came to Jesus when I was a senior in high school and I was pursuing a whole bunch of stuff that was against God's word. And I came to God, I said, I feel empty. There's no way this satisfies. There's gotta be more. And what I know now, 
what I thought was a natural consequence of my 17-year-old self pursuing sinful behavior was actually God's wrath being applied in my life. That emptiness was more than just a natural consequence. He goes on in verse 26 and 27 and makes almost the exact same point, but this time hones in on the topic of homosexuality. Once again, Paul's point is not just that homosexuality is a sin. That is implied within the verses, but that's not his point. Paul's point is to say that the underlying issue within the entire LGBTQ lifestyle is the exact same underlying issue within the heterosexual lifestyle when you are doing it outside of obedience to God's word. It's the same issue. It's the same issue as a promiscuous lifestyle, and it is rooted in idolatry. And that as an act of wrath against that idolatry, God allows people to experience the heartbreak and the messiness of trying to find meaning and identity outside of obedience of God's word. This week, in preparation for this passage, I was reading as much as I could just views and thoughts and testimonies of people who have experienced this. Came across a wonderful article on the Gospel Coalition by a man named Beckett Cook. Beckett was a man who was deep into the LGBTQ life in Hollywood. And he had this come to Jesus moment. He writes in this article, he says, it was a moment in Paris six months earlier. I was at a fashion party and just felt empty. I had done everything in Hollywood, met everyone, traveled everywhere, yet I was overwhelmed with emptiness at this party. That's my story too. I was overwhelmed with emptiness. It was one of the most intense, is that all there is moments in my life? I had already been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life, searching for it in all sorts of ways, but I knew God was never an option because I was gay. It was off the table. I wasn't confused about what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. I knew it was clear, but I was still searching for meaning. Becky Cook came to a place in his life where he looked out at all the things that he thought everyone around him said, if you pursue this, it will give you meaning in life. And he came to a place where he was empty. And what we now know, looking at this passage, is that's not just the natural consequences of living a life outside of obedience to God's word. It's actually God's wrath. That's the point of the passage. It's God's wrath being pushed on our life against our sinful choices. Beckett Cook walked into a coffee shop and saw a group of Christians with their Bibles open and said, what are you reading? And they very lovingly and compassionately said, we're reading the Bible and we're Christians. He said, what does your church think about homosexuality? And they lovingly and compassionately told them everything that I'm sharing with you today. And he came, came to church that Sunday and heard a message that he didn't think he was going to hear. He heard about God's love and grace for sinners like us. He came to know Jesus. Unless we find our identity in Jesus and obedience to his word, no matter what our affections or emotions or culture tells us, then we're going to search for our identity elsewhere. We're going to try to find meaning for our our life elsewhere. The issue is not homosexuality. The issue is idolatry, right? The issue is not heterosexual promiscuity. The issue is idolatry, trying to find meaning apart from God and his word. Sam Alberry, who wrote the book that I'm giving to everybody in this room who wants it when you walk out of here, is a same-sex attracted man who, because of desire to live in obedience to God's word and find the full life, which is in obedience to God's word, has decided to live a life of uh, abstinence from sex. And he writes this about the celibate lifestyle in order to honor the Lord's commandment. He says, sexuality is not a matter of identity. And that's good news. 
That's what he writes. My primary, my primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexual, sexually fulfilled, and this is liberating. The most fully human and complete human was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was not in a romantic relationship, and he never had sex. If we say that those things are intrinsic to human worth and identity, then we are calling our Savior subhuman. Our sexuality does not define who we are. That's not our identity. And if we allow it to become our identity, that becomes idolatry. Our singleness or our marriedness does not define who we are. Our bank account does not define who we are. Come on, church, you know where I'm going with this. Who we are is not defined by our skin color, by our heritage, by our culture, by our story, by what our parents did or didn't do or any other part of our life other than who Jesus says we are. That's our identity. And so long as we are trying to find our identity in something other than Jesus hanging on a cross, looking to us, saying, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. Come to me, you who are idolaters and sinful, and I will forgive your sin, so long as we try to find meaning in any other place than the shadow of the cross, we're lost in idolatry, and it will always leave us empty. That's the message of this passage. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. Now, Paul's not done. What he does next is frankly terrifying for everybody. Verses 28 to 32. The third exchange And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, my kids are in trouble, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We should be seeing Paul's point, and frankly, I think he's done it almost poetically. Look at this list of vices for a moment. Four words over from murderer is gossiper. You see that? So who's worthy of death? Murderers and gossipers. Four words later is boastful. Gotcha yet? Disobedient to parents, foolish, heartless. Find yourself in that list. That's what Paul's saying. Find yourself in that list. Every one of us is found somewhere in this chapter, in Romans chapter 1. No one's off the hook. That's Paul's point. Now here's what I want to say. If when you look at your sin in that list, Deep down in your heart of hearts, you go, well, it's not as bad as some of the other ones in this passage. Then you fundamentally miss the point of the passage. If deep down in your heart of hearts, you think 
that your sin is not quite as bad as the person sitting next to you. That your boasting is not quite as bad as the people who were marching in the gay pride parade. If deep down in your heart of hearts, something inside of you is not utterly devastated that your name came up and he got your number, then you didn't read the passage right. Look at verse 32 with me and let it sink in. Those who practice such things deserve to die. Sin is an affront to the glory of God. And nothing, nothing short of death is what is justly owed for gossips, for boasters, for sexually promiscuous, for haughty idolaters like us. I want to tell you a secret about the Christian life. Everybody, Christians and non-Christians, can sniff out really quickly if you think you're morally superior to them. Pretty much right away. Like, it just, you walk down the street and, and you got a label on you if you think you're morally superior to somebody. And, you know, this is such an affront to the gospel Christians, when we walk outside, the gospel is that we are sinful through and through, but by the grace of God, we've been saved. And when we go to people, oftentimes we look at sinners out there, us in our holy huddle in here and the sinners out there, and then we walk out there and we leave here with a sense of moral superiority as if somehow we got the, you know, we got the gold star because of us getting our life together. And we look out there at the people who don't have the gold star and we think that we got moral superiority over them. And then when we approach them, we begin to communicate to them, telling them all the ways that they got to get their act together and none of the ways that we got to get our act together or the ways that God has miraculously worked in our life to overcome sin in our life. Not of our own doing, but of God's own doing. And we walk around with a sense of moral superiority. Everyone can sniff it out. Everybody. The world is not fooled when Christians live as morally superior saints. They see it and they reject it. It sounds just like everybody else. Let's get back for just a moment. Let's take this into the conversation on sexuality. The LGBT community has rather consistently expressed how ostracized the church has made them feel because of what I just said. My heart breaks for that. Breaks. It breaks for that. I can understand if a sinner reads the word of God and here's what God has to say about their lifestyle and is angry with God. I get that. That's a good thing. Every sinner should read the word of God and look at their own life and realize it's not in line with the word of God. And at first, it probably is going to really hurt that God is not made in your image, but you're made in God's image. <laughs> that God does not agree with everything we say. I get if people are upset with God on God's word. You know what I hate? When people are upset with Christianity because of Christians who think they're morally superior to them. That's what I hate. It's wonderful and strong to stand with convictions about the word of God. It is wrong to use the word of God as a butcher's knife over other people's life rather than like a surgeon's scalpel. The word of God is not to be used to beat people into submission. 
The word of God is to be used to reveal the deepest needs of our heart, to expose it, to say you were made for God. You were made for Jesus. He alone satisfies you. He is the one who looks at you, sinners like me, and looks on the cross and says, I see you in all your brokenness. I know you're prone to idolatry, and I love you. Come to me. Come, broken as you are. Me too, I'm broken. Guess what? I'm broken, and i got to come constantly to the foot of the cross and see Jesus saying, I love you, sinner. Just keep your eyes fixed on me. I'm enough for you. I'll satisfy more than any lifestyle ever could that you thought could satisfy you. And so long as we use the word of God as a surgeon's scalpel like that, people will listen. But when you use it like a butcher's knife and slap people on the head and pretend that you're morally superior, it does not work. And it's not what God's told us to do. We are to have gentleness and respect when we give a defense for the hope that's within us. That's what Peter reminded us. When we look at this passage today, perhaps you ask yourself, Rafe, where's the hope? All I see is that we're left for dead. The hope's all through this passage. And if you're an astute reader of Scripture, you can spot it. You can see it written all the way through the language of God giving them up into sin. That's Old Testament language. That's pulled right out of the Old Testament. When God's people in the Old Testament fell into idolatry and they fell into sin, you know what God would do? He would hand them over. He'd raise up the Babylonians. He'd raise up the Assyrians. And you know what would happen? God's wrath would be poured out on the people of God. And it was hard. I don't want you to make light of what God's wrath is like when it comes. People died. It was bloody. There were wars. There were battles. Families were broken apart. The consequences of sin is death. It always has been. That's the natural consequences of an affront to the glory of God. But when God handed them over, he always had a deeper hope. Psalm 81 reveals this to us. Psalm 81 verses 11 to 12. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over. Same language. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. One verse later. Verse 13 to 14. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. Then, then, then I would satisfy you. God's heart is clear. As he hands us over to the natural consequences of our sin, his desire is that in our brokenness, we would realize the error of our ways, realize the pain of our sin, and turn to the living God. That we would reach out in our emptiness and in our scars, and we would find Jesus on the cross looking down saying, I can satisfy you like that can't. Your brokenness can be met by my love, and I'll be enough. God sent his son to die for sinners like us boasters like us, gossips like us, inventors of evil like us, covetous idolaters like us, sexually immoral like us, lustful like us. Oftentimes I get the question, Rafe, I see so much wrath in the Old Testament. It seems like God's changed. In the Old Testament, I see wrath, 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 wrath. Then in the New Testament, it seems like all I see is grace. What gives? Did God change? And what I say to that is, no, you just haven't read your New Testament. Because what happened is, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to someone who would come to absorb God's wrath. Because at that time, it was being poured out in full, a great picture of what it looks like. 
And then Jesus came, and Jesus, God in the flesh, hung on the cross, and in that moment, all of God's wrath that was seen in the Old Testament in full being poured out on God's people, all of God's wrath hung on one man. Your wrath, and your wrath, and your wrath, all on Jesus' shoulders. He's like a sponge. Rather than have it go out to all of us, as should be the case, Jesus hangs on a cross, absorbs God's wrath on our behalf as the Father turns his face away, dies in our place. The consequences of sin is death, and if your faith is in Jesus alone, no matter what you've done, he died in your place that you might have life. He shed his blood so that you might not have to. He absorbed God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to absorb God's wrath. And it's a free gift. That's the good news for sinners like us. That God knew that we couldn't do it on our own and he sent Jesus to die in our place. And every human on this planet finds forgiveness for their sin in one place alone. The foot of the cross where the blood of the Messiah was shed for them. To anyone listening to this message, whether now in this room or later on online, I want you to know that Jesus is primarily interested in meeting the deepest desires of your heart. And he tells you to come as you are. He says, repent. Repent. Turn from your sin." but don't think you're going to suddenly have your whole life together. you got to make a decision to make Jesus Lord of your life and turn and say, I'm moving forward. Whatever I had as Lord is being put to the side, and now Jesus is my Lord. And then he begins to transform you, and he alone can satisfy you. If you leave this room today thinking, well, now I know a little bit more about what the Bible says about homosexuality then you totally miss the point. You just missed it. That's not the point of this passage. You are not saved because you assume the title of Christian and you're straight. That doesn't, that's not what saves you. As if somehow that combination makes you morally superior to somebody. No, we're sinners, worthy of the wrath of God through and through, every single person, no matter what your sin is. And we all come before the grace of God and find grace in Jesus Christ. Paul wants you to be broken over your sin. He wants you to read that passage and find your name. And then he wants you to weep at your brokenness. The hope that he actually writes of won't come till almost chapter 5. He wants us to sit in a broken place over our sin and wrestle with the reality that the consequences of our sin is death. He wants you to see that your sin is no light matter. It's no less or more than anyone else's. This passage is supposed to make you look at yourself and scream out and scream, woe is me, I'm an idolater. I'm an idolater. To recognize right now, I'm an idolater. I come in here this Sunday morning and I'm an idolater. I'm so prone to walking away. And he wants that posture when you get done reading this. And if that's not your posture, if your posture is he's an idolater or she's an idolater or they're idolaters, you missed it. And what you need to know is Jesus has more to say to you. He wants to bring us to the foot of the cross. He wants to introduce us to what it means to be sinners who receive grace. Amen? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a a season of prayer right now. 
And what I'd like to do is invite you to stand up. I'm going to invite the band to come up. If you've been at Park for any time, you know that we do this every once in a while, and I think today is very important. If you are trained as a prayer warrior, I'm going to invite you right now, if you've gone through our training or if you're a deacon, to take a step out and you can find a, a spot along the outside of these walls. I believe that every one of us, what we need most importantly in our life is prayer. That's what we need. We need to be a people that pray, that actually believe that we pray. You know, I, wouldn't it be crazy? I, I had a conversation with someone a while ago from overseas who came and visited an American church. And they were giving comment on the church. They said, everything was great. The teaching was great. The one thing you were missing was any sense of power because nobody prayed in the church. You just went in and did something, and then you left. There was no prayer. Wouldn't that be crazy if you came to church over and over and we never called out loud to God together? If this makes you totally uncomfortable, I understand. But this is what God's people do. We pray. The band's going to play, play music behind us, and I'm going to invite you to get up out of your seats. There's people who want to pray with you. Come find somebody. If this passage didn't hit you, then you didn't hear what I said. We've all got sin to repent of. We all have to understand the consequences of our sin. We all have brokenness in our life. I got it this week. I got stuff I need you praying over me this week, and this is our family. If you don't pray for me, I got no one to pray for me. You're it, and we all have that situation. I want to invite you up out of your seats. We can have a little messiness in this room right now. If this is totally uncomfortable and you don't know what to do, you can just stay in your seats and there will be a slide that will come up and there's some prayers. You can just pray quietly in your seats. But if you have any confidence right now to just get up, I invite you, get around the room, spread out, find a place to be alone with God and pray out loud. Pray loud. Let's fill this room. If you came with someone, put your hand on their shoulder and just pray out loud. Say, God, do a work in our heart. We got so much to learn and do. Will you start doing this? And let's let our prayers, as Scripture says, rise up before the throne of God as a sweet fragrance before his throne. Wouldn't that be great if God's people just prayed as if heaven was about to come down? Can we make that happen in this room right now? What I'm going to invite you to do is I'm going to say a short prayer. And then I'm going to say... Church, pray. And as the band plays, I'm going to invite you, pray out loud. Get up around the room, find someone. We all have something. And I'm going to let the Spirit lead. Members, I encourage you, drive this time of prayer. It's very important. Heavenly Father, we come before you as sinners. Sinners who some days can't make straight of anything, who have received grace. God, would you do a great work in this room as we corporately pray together. Would you do a work in our hearts as we hear the prayers being said out loud? Would you remind us that prayer is powerful, that you've given us each other. You've given us a church so that we'd have one another to pray power into our lives. You've given us your spirit. God, we want to be an authentic church. We want to be one of those churches where Jesus is just regularly showing up and, and just saying, I'm here. I'm in your midst. I'm changing you. Would you allow us to pray right now with a sense of power? Church, Pray.